Good morning, Mission Point. Welcome again, and a happy St. Patrick's Day again. I wore a green coat today, so I think I'm covered. Uh, I hope you all get to enjoy some Irish stew or fish and chips or something for lunch. Uh, It's good stuff. Uh, Well, several years ago, Prince William and Kate Middleton came to the U.S. for a few days. And among other things, they went to an NBA game where they saw LeBron James play on the team he's supposed to play for, the Cleveland Cavaliers. After the game, they met and took this picture. Do you see anything wrong with it? As Americans, we don't see it. We, we miss it. We don't know what's going on. We don't see what's going on. But this was a serious breach of royal etiquette by LeBron James. You do not touch royalty. You do not touch royalty. This was quite literally the side hug heard around the world. As British papers and radio programs and websites debated whether or not this is a big deal. And they made jokes about it. And the palace actually put out a press release concerning this picture. Somehow, it became a huge deal culturally. This morning, we're going to look at Mark chapter 1, verses 40 to 45, where there's another unexpected touch that was far more shocking and infinitely more significant. If you have your Bibles, please uh, flip open there. Mark chapter 1. And I'll give us a little context for where we're at in, in, in the Gospel of Mark. But uh, we'll put the, screen, the verses up on the screen as well. If you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one. We would love to give you one. We believe that, that the Bible is, is one of God's many gifts to us. And we would love to gift it to you and have you walk out of here today with your own copy of God's Word. So if you don't have one and you want one, stop by the Connection Corner on your way out, and we will gladly, uh, gladly give you one. So Mark 1 is near the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He doesn't even have his full team assembled yet. He's called some of the disciples, but not all of them. Uh, and he's been teaching some. He's been casting out demons, and he's been doing some healings. As a result of all this, his fame was growing, his notoriety was spreading. And then we get to Mark 1, 40 through 45. So let's, let's read that this morning. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone. But go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet people still came to him from everywhere. There are two sort of distinct parts to this story. And the first one starts with Jesus being approached by a man with leprosy. And this first half is just 
chock full of shocking little tidbits, shocking events in these just three verses. But to understand it, we need to get a better grasp of what leprosy was. It was a horrible disease. At the time, it was the worst diagnosis you could possibly get. It was debilitating, it was deadly, and it was incurable. It would disfigure and distort your body. It would cover you with sores, and then it would attack your nerve endings so that you couldn't feel anything. Which doesn't sound that bad when you're covered with sores. Like, not feeling kind of sounds like a good, good option. Except, then you couldn't feel when you'd injured yourself. You could literally sit too close to the fire and get severe burns and not know it. You could step on a sharp rock and cut your foot badly and, and end up with a seriously infected wound and have no idea that it happened. There are actually some pretty gruesome stories about things that happened to people with leprosy because they couldn't feel, but I'll spare you those for this morning. But these, these wounds that get infected, and a combination of those untreated wounds and infection would often lead to people losing fingers or toes or hands or their feet. This was the disease that this man had. There was no cure and there was no hope. But because this disease was also contagious, it took more than your health. The book of Leviticus, it's all, all the way back to the third book in the Bible. It talks about how someone with leprosy had to live because this disease was contagious. Because there was a danger it spreading throughout the community. So this is how they had to live. Now, now, as I read this, imagine that you're out working in the field one day, or you're playing with your kids, or, or you're working around the house, and all of a sudden you notice a sore on your hand, and it's whitish in the middle, and at that moment, you begin to fear that these verses aren't just laws on books, but a life sentence that you have to serve. Leviticus 13. Anyone with such a defiling disease must wear torn clothes. Let their hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of their face, and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! As long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. They must live alone. They must live outside the camp. Leprosy meant a life of exile and shame. And that is this man's story. This is a real man. Now, sometimes when you read through the Bible, it's hard, it's, we, we kind of lose that. That these are real people that experience these things. But this is his devastating story. He had a disease that stole everything from him. And he was unclean. Can you imagine that? Isolated from everything and everyone. Losing everything. You have a job? Not anymore. You're dependent on the generosity of others leaving you food for you to come and pick up at a designated location or whatever you can find out there by yourself. You want to worship God with your community at the synagogue? Nope. Can't do it anymore. You're on your own. Then let's add insult to injury. Tear your clothes, cover your mouth, look as disheveled as possible 
as a visual sign to people that I'm not a, I'm not a safe person to come close to. And then yell, unclean, unclean, anytime anyone seems to be coming too close. You need to warn them and declare your shame to the world. And just to be safe, you had to stay up to 50 paces, 50 yards away from anyone who didn't have leprosy. His friends, his wife, his kids. He couldn't approach any of them. Couldn't hold his wife. Couldn't hug his kids. Relationships severed by this disease. And, and I'm sure he was concerned for them. For his family. I mean, how are, were they going to eat if he wasn't there to provide? All of this weighing on this man because of this disease. And so this man does the unthinkable. And the scandal of this scene is lost on us a bit, just like LeBron's touch of Kate Middleton. Because we don't have the same understanding of the magnitude of what it meant to be a leper. But when Mark's first readers, the first, the first people who got this book of the Bible, would have picked this up and read it, the response would have been, Whoa! What? I must not have read that right. There must... Let me try that again. Yes, it does say he walked right up to Jesus. He came to him. He came to him. It's unbelievable. He broke every law and cultural code there was in coming close to Jesus. I mean, if he was supposed to yell unclean to keep other people away, to make sure nobody approached him, he definitely wasn't supposed to go intentionally close to anyone else. Jesus could have had him killed for coming this close to him, for endangering a clean person with such reckless disregard. But this man was willing to risk the only thing he had left, his life, because he saw a glimmer of hope in Jesus. And, and this wasn't just a gutsy move. This showed incredible faith. Incredible faith. This was a huge request. Curing someone with leprosy was put on par with raising someone from the dead. In other words, it didn't happen. One, one pastor, H.B. Charles Jr., points out, this leper, he didn't know any cleansed lepers. He didn't know any cleansed lepers. There were none. Yet the reports he heard about Jesus convinced him it was possible. He came to Jesus. He risked his life. He broke every cultural code and law because he believed Jesus could do the impossible. You can, he says, you can make me clean. Notice he doesn't say, you can heal me. You can make me clean. He was asking for more than healing. He wanted more than just for this sickness, this disease to be gone. He wanted to be clean. He wanted to be whole again. He wanted to be restored Back to what he had before this disease robbed him of everything. 
He comes with huge faith. But he doesn't let that faith in Jesus' power and his desire to be clean push him into being entitled or presumptuous. He doesn't act like my faith in Jesus means he has to do this for me. My faith in Jesus obligates him to do something for me. He says, if you are willing. Bows is for Jesus, if you are willing. I just imagine what's going through his head as, as he's bowing before Jesus. And he, he says very, very few words. There are nine words in, in the NIV for what he says to Jesus. But I just imagine what's going through his head is, I know you have the power to do this. I know you do. And I want more than anything to be clean. I want more than anything for my body to be healed, for my shame to be taken away, for my life to be given back to me. For, to be back with my family and with my worshiping community. I want that more than anything except for your will. If you are willing, you can do this. I know you can do this. But if you're willing, will you? Will you have mercy on me? As I was looking at this passage this week, I was struck with like, how much is my prayer life like this? Do I, do I pray this boldly? Do I pray with this much faith and with this much humility? I mean, if you, if you think about it, prayer in and of itself is incredibly bold. Prayer is incredibly bold. We're talking to our creator, and not just our creator, but the creator of the universe, the, the God of everything, the almighty one, the king of kings, the eternal, the immortal. That's who we're talking to. Prayer is little me coming to him with my praises and requests. So prayer is bold. But also, do, do, do I pray with this kind of faith? Do we pray with this kind of faith? Faith that doesn't necessarily say, God, I believe you're going to do this for me. But rather, faith that says, God, I believe you can do anything, no matter how impossible what I'm asking is. I believe you can do this. There's not a doubt in my mind in your ability. Do I pray with that kind of faith in God's power? And do I pray with this kind of humility? A humility that says, God, I know you're able, but no, and, and I want nothing more than what I'm bringing to you. Except for your will to be done, because I believe that you know better than me. I want your will So I know you can. Please do it. But God, I trust you. I wish my prayer life was more marked by this, this boldness to continue to come. And this faith of not doubting God's ability and the humility 
to truly say, God, not my will, but yours be done. And then Jesus responds. He responds to this leper's plea in a revolutionary way. Verse 41. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Now, a quick aside here. Some of you for following along your Bibles you might be a little concerned about my reading ability because your Bible does not say indignant. It doesn't say angry. It doesn't say he was mad. Your Bible says he was full of compassion. He had pity on him. He, was, he, was, he had compassion for him. And there's sort of a wide disparity between anger and compassion, we tend to think. Now, first of all, good catch. The punchline is this. Sometimes Bible translators have to make decisions about how to get words in Hebrew and Greek and other biblical languages that are, that are dead and they're thousands of years old from these ancient scrolls into our modern-day Bibles, into our modern-day English. And the translators of the NIV, which is the, the Bible we, we typically preach from here at Mission Point, they made a different decision than a lot of the other translators. Now, situations like this, they're incredibly rare. We're talking about, like, a dozen, give or take a couple, throughout the entire Bible. One just happens to fall into our passage for this morning. So, if you're interested in all the nuts and bolts of, of, of that, like, I'd be happy to have that conversation with you later. Uh, but this morning, we're going to roll with the NIV, which says, Jesus was indignant. But that leads us into, say, wait, he was indignant. What was he indignant about? What was he mad about? What in all of this got him angry? Because it seems like a really strange response. I mean, this man comes to Jesus, and, and he's humble. He's showing great faith. What, what is there for Jesus to be mad about? I think Jesus is so angry here because he sees how much someone he loves is suffering. Because of how sin has brought corruption to the good world he created. Jesus was indignant in a way that it was righteous indignation, true righteous indignation. He hated seeing what sin had done to his creation and how it was destroying this man's body, how it had severed his relationship, torn him from his family and his worshiping community. You see, Jesus' anger here was fueled by his love for this man. And overflowed into compassion for him. I am willing, Jesus says. And, and to think about this indignation at how sin has broken this whole world. I just imagine Jesus saying, like, that, that's exactly what my will is. That is exactly what my w- will is. I'm here to lead a revolution against the power of sin because it's my will for this world that I created good to be good again, to be right again. It's my will for death and disease to be destroyed. And someday I'll do it once and for all. But today, 
for today, I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to revolt against the powers of darkness for you. It is my will that you go back to hold your wife, to wrestle with your son, and to kiss your daughter goodnight. It's my will that you can go and worship with God's people without hindrance. I am willing. I want you to be clean. Be clean. And Jesus touched him. Jesus touched the untouchable. For the first time in weeks, in months, maybe even years, this man felt the touch of another human being. And here's what should have happened. The moment Jesus' hand came in contact with the leper's shoulder, Jesus should have become unclean too. That's how it worked. That's what Leviticus says. Unclean things make clean things unclean. Jesus should have been unclean. He should have been forced to join this man living out in isolation. He should have been forced to live out, stay outside the city until he found out whether or not he had been infected with the disease. That's what should have happened. And that's what would have happened if this were any other person. But Jesus is not just any other person. You see, Jesus had a contagious cleanness that was stronger than that man's uncleanness. And so when Jesus touched him, Jesus didn't become unclean, but that man became clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus touched the untouchable and cleansed the uncleansable. He cured the incurable. Immediately, this leprosy was completely gone. It stood no chance. The disease immediately, fully, and completely obeyed him. And the good news is that that is the same thing he can do for our unclean hearts that have been infected with sin. The Old Testament book of Jeremiah talks about our hearts as being desperately sick, that they are beyond cure. Our hearts are beyond cure and desperately sick. Phrases that applied to this man just moments ago. Desperately sick with leprosy and beyond cure. Until Jesus. Until Jesus. And so in the same way for us, anyone who comes to him and asks for forgiveness... He makes our desperately sick, beyond cure, hearts clean. He washes away our sin. He restores us to right relationship with God. And he makes us whole again. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. And he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He will cleanse us. 
He does that for anyone who realizes that they have no hope of a clean heart unless Jesus, unless Jesus shows them mercy. Yes, 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 that invitation is open to you. Yes, Jesus can cleanse you from your sin, from that sin. And yes, Jesus wants to cleanse you. Jesus wants to cleanse you. It is his will. And he can. Don't doubt his power or his love for you. Come to him and simply ask him to make you clean. And he will. That is the hope of the gospel. That is us seeing ourselves in the leper and saying, I am unclean, you are clean, make me clean. But I think there's something we can learn by seeing ourselves in Jesus too. You see, this unclean man felt like he could come close to Jesus. He had, believe me, for days, weeks, months, and years, he has been aware every single day that he is unclean. He has been isolated, and he's been shouting it. He's been saying it pretty much every day to anyone who passes by. Hey, I'm unclean. I'm unclean. There's no doubt in his mind that he is unclean. And yet, he felt like he could come close to Jesus. And he's far from the only one. There was something about Jesus that made people who were untouchable, unclean, unwanted, and ungodly feel like they could draw near to him. People who would have avoided other religious leaders, people who other religious leaders would have rejected, sought out Jesus. Here in Mark 1, we have this leper the very next chapter, in Mark 2, Jesus is hanging out with, quote, sinners in a tax collector's house. And a tax collector, by the, quote, unquote, good Jews of that day, a tax collector was a traitor because he was working for the Romans. And Jesus is hanging out with them. And then a blind man in Bartimaeus in Mark chapter 10 is shouting to get Jesus' attention. From the center, he's shouting, shouting out Jesus' name. Because he wants to get Jesus' attention. Even though everyone around is like, hey, shh, be quiet. They're trying to hide him, trying to shush him, trying to keep him away from Jesus. But in spite of that, he's shouting out Jesus' name. He wants to draw near to Jesus. And then, there's a prostitute who ran straight into a religious leader's house, of all places. A place she never would have gone otherwise. A place she never would have been welcomed otherwise. 
And she ran straight in there because she knew that Jesus was there. And she proceeded to wash Jesus' feet with her tears and dry his feet with her hair. All while the religious leader is sitting there scoffing at her, turning his nose up, disgusted by her presence. And yet, she gladly sits at Jesus' feet. I could go on and on, but women and children and foreigners and the sick and the sinner and the marginalized and the cast aside all came to Jesus knowing he was different. Knowing that he was compassionate and full of love. He wasn't going to further humiliate them or dismiss them. He wasn't going to shame them or lecture them. He wasn't going to tell them, to, hey, go clean yourself up first, get it together, then come back to me. They knew that Jesus would go out of his way to value them and to spend time with them, to listen to them. They knew that he would advocate for them and protect them. They knew that he would defend them and speak up for them. When those in power, like that religious leader, sought to exploit or harm him. They felt safe with Jesus. Is that also us? Is that us? Do we reflect that Jesus and his approachability? Are we known for our compassion and our love to the degree that anyone would feel comfortable coming to us? I mean, we, we certainly would like to think so, but are we really? Do our actions and words make us approachable by those who are hurting and those who are vulnerable? Those who we disagree with? Are we approachable or have comments we've made or articles we've posted about the Me Too movement or Black Lives Matter made people who experience sexual assault or racism feel like they need to keep quiet around us? There's no place for your pain here. Or, or do they feel afraid? Do they have reason to fear that we'll be skeptical of their stories? About their, the ways that they've been mistreated or abused? What, what about the people sitting in this room right now? who are same-sex attracted or feel like they were born into the wrong body? Are the memes we post worth making them feel scared to share their struggle with us? Would a, would a woman who has had an abortion feel like you're a safe person to, to talk to about that, to confess that to? Or would she feel con fear condemnation? 
After scrolling through your Facebook page, would someone who's in this country illegally feel comfortable sitting at your table for dinner? Would you feel comfortable having them there? What about someone from a different religious group? Jesus was comfortable with anyone coming to him. I mean, think about even just the past couple weeks here at Mission Point, the things we've been looking at, hearing about with mental health. Would someone who suffers from bipolar disorder or OCD or depression feel like you're a safe person to talk to? Or have you made jokes that have indicated to them that you find their struggle a laughing matter? All of us, myself foremost, have been far too careless with our words. I need God's forgiveness for the careless ways I've spoken that have hurt people. I'm guessing I'm not the only one. And and I don't think we mean to make ourselves unapproachable by any stretch. I don't think that's our intent. But the impact of our words and jokes and opinions is real. And it's not always what we intend. Don't get me wrong here. Hear me very clearly. Jesus did not condone the way everyone who came to him was living. You know what else? The people who came to him knew that. The prostitute had no, no, was under no illusion that Jesus was okay with how she was living her life. But something about the way he carried himself told them that he was a safe haven for them anyway. That should be our goal. To reflect that Jesus, to show and share his love In such a way that the vulnerable, the violated, the victim, the outcast, and the hurting know that the church is a place for hope and healing. Our job is to tell people about and represent Jesus. So if we aren't approachable, how will they know that he is? That brings us to the second half of this story. Verses 43 through 45. It starts off with Jesus giving this leper some very specific and serious instruction. He says, go, show yourself to the priest, just like Leviticus says, do the offerings, do all that. Let them know you're clean, you re-enter society, and then don't tell anyone else. Keep your mouth shut. That seems like a really weird thing for Jesus to say. Like normally he wants people to like hear about how great he is, right? Like, so this is, just seems weird. I think the best way of sort of describing it is to talk about how we, how we interact with YouTube videos. Recently I saw a YouTube video entitled, Pouring Lava in My Pool. 
Of course I clicked on it. And then I realized it was over 11 minutes long. No offense to the guy who made it, but I don't really want to listen to you ramble on about where you got the idea to try this, or what you think is going to happen when you do it, or how you set everything up, or why I shouldn't try this at home, or where to buy the stuff if I want to ignore your warnings and try this at home. Don't try it at home. All I want to do is see what happens when you take lava, homemade lava, and dump it into your swimming pool. You probably need a new liner, but, you know, uh, what happens? I just want to know what happens. I want to see the thing that's, like, crazy and out there. So what did I do? We click ahead, right? Click, click, click. We fast forward. We jump ahead in the video. I click ahead and find the part where he dumps his homemade lava in the pool. It wasn't nearly as exciting as I was hoping. But I don't know that guy's name. I don't know anything about him. It seemed like it was sort of supposed to be this like, educational video as well. And I have zero idea what he was trying to teach me. And that right there is why Jesus told the man, shh. He knew that if word got out about this kind of thing and it kept spreading, people would have zero interest in the message or the messenger and only care about the miracle. We're here for the show, Jesus. Hurry up, come on, we'll cl- click ahead to the healing part. Can we fast forward through all this talking stuff and... and yeah, I don't really care about you. I just want to see, amaze me. No, no, can you give me another one? We want to binge watch miracles. They would be so distracted by the healing that they would miss the healer. And so Jesus said, shh. Surprise, surprise, that's not what the man did. Verse 45, instead he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. He skipped the whole going to the priest thing and started to talk freely, babbling over town about what happened. And admittedly, it's hard to blame the guy. Like, this is incredible. This is the best thing that's ever happened to him. It's the craziest thing that's ever happened to him. It's the most important thing that's ever happened to him. And he's supposed to be quiet about it? Come on. And really, you know, if you put yourself in his shoes, you're like, it doesn't make any sense. Why would Jesus want me to be quiet? You know what? He'll thank me. More people will know about how awesome he is. I'm, just, I'm doing him a favor. I'm just going to tell people. So this man, who moments ago was so concerned about Jesus' will, if you're willing, you can make me clean. So concerned about Jesus' will. But once... He feels like his need's been met. Meh. I got what I want, and I'll do what I want. How humble was this man, really? Remember how he came and bowed down, humbly asking for this miracle? If we're really, truly deeply humble. We can't bow down to Jesus one minute and brush him off the next. And and so this demonstrates a hard truth for us that is really hard to swallow sometimes. It's the fact that often we're only humble because we've been humbled. 
We're only humble because we've been humbled. We, haven't, we aren't actually humble. We just don't have any other options. So when we're out of options, we've tried everything we can. we tried to fix everything on our own. And then we're like, oh, shoot, man, I guess I've finally come to you, Jesus. And bow the knee to you. Because we've finally realized what's been true all along. He is our only hope. He's our only provider. He's the only one who won't leave us. So when life's hard, we cling to him every moment of every day. Life's good. Well, God, you know what? Thanks for helping me over that speed bump. I got it now. We pray and trust God seeking his will when we are out of work or the bank account's low or... We're about ready to graduate, and we're like, I have no idea what to do next. What I'm going to do, what I'm going to do. God, what's your will? Please show me your will. I want to do your will. What's, what's your will? And then he gives us a job. And all the time we spent seeking him disappears. We're too busy now. I got a job now. Things are good. I, wait, actually, God bless you with a job now. <laughs> Don't forget the blesser. Don't let go of the blesser and cling to the blessing. The call to listen to and follow Jesus doesn't stop when he takes care of my big needs, whatever I think those are. The call to follow Jesus is a whole life Lifelong called, and there's no other way to follow him. Every facet of our life, every moment of our life, we are to live with our knee bowed to him. We are to live following after him. And it's so easy to get distracted, especially when things are good. So this man disobeys and disregards Jesus' clear instruction and had consequences. Moving on in verse 45. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Jesus suffered the consequences for this man's disobedience. Jesus traded places with this leper because of his disobedience. Band, you guys can come on out as I wrap this up. Um, This, this is the bigger picture here. This is a snapshot of the gospel. It's Jesus trading places with the leper because of his disobedience. Jesus can't go back into town now. He gets, he gets mobbed, so he has to go out to the lonely places. Meanwhile, the leper can go freely about town. Jesus does the same thing for us. He traded places, not just with this leper in this instance, but with every one of us 
who believes in him. He traded places with us by taking our cross, by taking our sin, by taking our shame, by taking our death. And giving us life. This is a picture of the gospel. And even notice here, notice here, this happens after the man is cleansed. It goes beyond the initial moment of salvation. The initial moment of forgiveness. Because this man, in spite of his disobedience, God did not look at him and say, leprosy again. And us, in our continued failings, God doesn't look at us and say, condemnation again. Because Romans 8.1 says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't need to be re-saved after every sin. Because what Jesus has done in trading us places pays for all of our sins, past and present and future. Sins done intentionally and maliciously. Sins done accidentally. accidentally, And sins we've done that we have no idea we even committed. All of them paid for at the cross. Jesus traded us for all of them. He took our place. That's one hymn that I love says, In my place condemned he stood. He goes on to say, He sealed my pardon with his blood. Sealed. He said it is finished and he meant it. My future is secure in Jesus because he traded places with me. He hung on the cross for me to make me clean. He trades Death that we deserve for life. What a glorious trade. I don't know. I I don't know what this has stirred in you. I've stirred stuff in me. If you want to talk with someone, the elders and small group leaders that are in the room, uh, they'll, they'll be down here in the front after the service, after we sing a closing song. And we'd be happy to pray with you, talk with you, just process things with you. I'll be down here as well, but I want to pray. And then let's stand and, and sing a song together about how glorious it is that Jesus has traded places with us. And he has made us clean. He has set us free. And as John says, if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for not treating us as our sins deserve, but treating him as our sins deserve and treating us as sons and daughters. Thank you for crushing your son to make us your children. Thank you for that great exchange our sin for his purity. Thank you for your compassion and for your love and for 
sending your son to lead a revolutionary response against the powers of sin and death. Thank you that one day he will finish it all. God, we love you. We want to be more like Jesus. Help us to truly follow him humbly. And to reflect his love to everyone. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.